Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Myers. Uh, you know Kate Behan by now. She is a Soul Cycle and Pilates instructor and health coach. Hi, Kate. Hi, Wendy. How is New York? It was great. Just, you know, lots of family time, got some official fall weather in, and a lot of time with my nephew who just turned two. So it was great. Oh, nice. Yeah, I uh, told the listeners last week that you were probably doing a lot of very unhealthy things over there. <laughs> Not too bad. My sister is actually very insanely meticulous about what she lets my nephew eat. Like, he thinks um, a lollipop is a kale banana smoothie. Oh, so. no. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't too bad. Oh, that's good. More family time. That's good. Well, everyone, today we're interviewing Denise Minger, author of the new book, Death by Food Pyramid, How Shoddy Science, Sketchy Politics, and Shady Special Interests Conspired to Ruin the Health of America. I love that title because I've really been anticipating this interview for a couple months, so this podcast is going to be really, really informative, so stay tuned. Uh, So, Kate, can you do our little disclaimer? Sure. Um, keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and it's not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Live to 110 podcast is solely informational in nature. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatment Wendy or myself suggests on the show. Yeah, so uh, what, uh, what kinds of things were you doing in New York? Um, well, actually, I took a soul cycle class I took one yeah really soul cycle out there in East Hampton and Watermelon Bridge Hampton huh? I thought you'd be pretty sick of it <laughs> take <laughs> no, a break would, from it <laughs> I, no I, I didn't I still took a class are you addicted yeah yeah you're addicted to cardio um what's going on with your weight loss guide it's finally done it's a miracle um, I finally have a little present for all you listeners. Um, I wrote an ebook called The Live to 110 by Weighing Less E-Guide. So if you go to my website, livetoone110.com, it's available to download for free. So just look for the, bo- the blog post about it, uh, about the free weight loss guide, or click weight loss in the post topics and you'll find it. And it will also soon be available on the homepage, right smack dab on the front homepage, or when you look on the sidebar, on the right sidebar, I'm working on that right now. And the e-guide is a 33-page basic weight loss e-guide filled with science-backed tips from the latest research that I've discovered about diet and exercise, and other tips about the causes of cravings and how to conquer your cravings and how to reduce stress, which is a very important aspect of weight loss. And the e-guide will basically help you get started on your path to lose weight. And it's a primer for my book, When Diet and Exercise Are Not Enough, a step-by-step plan to eliminating your roadblocks to weight loss. And that will be available in hopefully spring 2014. It's going pretty slow. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite a task writing a book, let me tell you. Especially because I'm trying to do such a good do- job. I'm trying to do lots of research read all the like latest scientific studies and really get the most cutting edge information. Um, but it's a, it's a big pain in the butt. <laughs> Ooh. But, um, so everyone, as many of you guys may know, uh, Denise Minger, our show, our guest today is the famed study dismantler of the China study. Uh, she studied and dissected Dr. Colin Campbell's raw China study daddy, uh, data and found all kinds of flaws in the study and thus major holes in his findings that supposedly claim that eating meat and dairy caused cancer and all the diseases of Western affluence. So uh, essentially the study is what many vegetarians and vegans are basing their diet upon, but they could be making a big mistake with their health. Um, I turned vegan when I read this book a few years ago but my health absolutely nosedived really quickly. I'm pretty much about six months into the diet and I had to stop. I had to go to my doctor and try to figure out what was wrong and I realized it was the vegan diet I was doing. Um, And I'm sure many of you listeners out there have had the same experience. 
Um, you know, because it's uh, just a diet that I personally don't think can be done long term in a healthy way. I think not that many people can do it successfully. But Kate, remember when we both used to be vegans and vegetarians and we used to go eat at all the vegan restaurants in LA thinking we were being super healthy? Yeah. We'd be eating like salad leaves and sprouts with like a side of seaweed and tacos with spiced walnut taco meat. Uh, ugh. God, I don't know how I survived. I remember when you ordered a, a BLT once where the bacon was dried spiced coconut meat that was... <laughs> It was tough as nails. It was yeah. on this unchewable, gluten-free bread. I was like, Ew, nasty. Yeah. And you kept going on about how good it was. I think we were both totally delusional. I don't think I'd eaten any, like, real food in months. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think both of us were vegetarian and vegan before going to IIN, you know, our nutrition school. For you listeners yeah. out there, it's the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. And I, I, and you know, they had some lectures about vegetarian and veganism, which was great, but it pretty much set me straight. It exposed me to, you know, other ways of eating and other ways of being, and it kind of got me thinking. I really responded to Sally Fallon, who's the, the yeah. founder of the Weston A. Price Foundation. A lot of her, her lectures really rang true for me, and I read her book, Nourishing Traditions, and I thought, this is, this is it. You know, we need to eat how... We, we've always eaten for millions of years and that just I couldn't deny that um, but you know basically for me I uh, after I, I first heard the speech from Sally Fallon um, you know when I, in our school program I went and bought my first pound of bacon <laughs> with <laughs> total peace of mind <laughs> Uh, do you remember when I used to give uh, you and all my friends a copy of the China study? I was like so fanatical when I when I first read this book, and it was like I was in some vegan brain fog, thinking I was going to save everybody. And I actually became fanatical before I started Live to One Hundred and Ten dot com. I was going to save everybody, at least just all my friends and family. <laughs> you know, I had to save them from the ravages caused by meat. Oh God, not bacon! And I'm sure that was. Uh, super annoying no it wasn't too bad I mean I do still have the book <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um yeah I don't know it, you know the good thing about IIN is that we did get to learn everything we got lectures from everyone across the board across the spectrum of health and it's good because you kind of get to make your own decision and um it's true like in the beginning towards the, the first part of the lectures a lot of it was about being vegan, being vegetarian. So, you know, I, I was experimenting with that and obviously you were too. And just eating meat, I think for me, and I know for you just is a way, the way that I, we need to live. Yeah, I agree. I mean, my poor husband, I mean, he had to listen to me talk about how meat was going to give him heart disease and cancer and I mean, I was getting really aggro about it too. Like, I was kind of like doing the vegan police thing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, my husband would be innocently eating his healthy food, and I'd be talking about how nasty meat was in factory farming, and he's eating cancer tumors. And <laughs> I mean, they don't call it the vegan police for nothing. Yeah. Um, but he was very patient with me. But now I, you know, I kind of feel bad for spewing nonstop nonsense. About how meat's bad for you, but you know it's bad. My husband he would have to go to one restaurant to get his food, and then to another one for my yeah, food. That's right. And then poor guy. I mean, I definitely put that man through the ringer. <laughs> I would have divorced myself. I was being so obnoxious about it, <laughs> and now I'm being super obnoxious about paleo and grass-fed meat, and bitching if we go to restaurants that don't serve grass-fed meat. <laughs> because uh, he just can't understand why I don't want to eat sliders at the Cheesecake Factory. No. I know. But all I can say is I literally became retarded when I was vegan. I, I couldn't hold the conversation. I couldn't remember anything. Um, I'm still convinced I have brain damage from being vegan because, you know, the diet just starves the brains of fats. And, you know, that's basically the problem with the diet is the lack of fats and cholesterol that we need to be healthy. Um, but I'll let Denise explain it. So today, I'm so honored to have our guest, Denise Minger, on the show today. She is a fellow blogger at rawfoodsos.com, 
And today we're going to extract a few of Denise's thoughts on the China study. But first, I want to talk about Denise Minger's new book, Death by Food Pyramid, How Shoddy Science, Sketchy Politics, and Shady Special Interests Conspired to Ruin the Health of America. I'm hoping her book will prompt change of the food pyramid. Um, our lunch school programs are based upon this document, as well as other government-run food program, pro- programs. And this document is taught in our school. Our children's health is at stake, frankly. And many other countries also base their diet recommendations on this document. So it's important not just for our country, but for the world that this document is loudly criticized to prompt change. So Denise's uh, her book is very important and timely, and it's a book that I believe um, I, I believe a book on this subject is long overdue. So Denise, thank you for being on the show. How are you? I'm fantastic, and thank you for that intro. Do you want to be my publicist? Uh, absolutely, <laughs> I will take the job. <laughs> I'll do a real good job too. <laughs> well, why don't you first tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and why you started your website rawfoodsos.com. Sure thing. So my health journey actually began when I was pretty young. I was seven years old when I first went vegetarian. And at the time, it was a choice um, made because I had almost choked on a piece of steak. And I became very phobic of like anything with the meat texture. So at that point, I kind of just pushed meat off the menu. But as time went on, I became more involved with like the ethical and the health arguments for vegetarianism. And I remained a vegetarian until I was um, 17, 18 years old. So about a decade as a vegetarian. And uh, throughout that process, I developed quite a few health problems, um, as well as food allergies, including an allergy to wheat and soy and dairy. And that all happened when I was about 11, 12, 13 years old. So um, by the time I was a teenager, I was already very kind of, uh, well, I had to be very health aware just because I needed to read food labels and understand what was in my food so I didn't get sick from it. So this kind of led to an ongoing interest in health that just kind of lay in the background the rest of my life. And uh, then when I was 16, 15, 16, I discovered the raw vegan diet. And the version of this diet I came across was promoted by someone named Douglas Graham, who basically, um, his message is that humans are best adapted for a diet of fruit and vegetables and almost nothing else. Maybe very small amounts of seeds, but you should eat about 80% of your diet is carbohydrate, 10% fat, 10% protein. And uh, at the time, I had absolutely no health background, any knowledge on biology, physiology, anything like that. And so his arguments made sense at the time. I was thinking, well, okay, that's kind of what the chimps eat, and we're, you know, very closely related to them, and they don't get these diseases that humans get. So maybe that's how we're supposed to eat. So and at that point, very young age, again, I was, I think, a sophomore in high school, I went completely raw vegan for a year. Ate not a single bite of cooked food, um, no animal products whatsoever. I'd already been a vegan for about two years before that, just because of, I couldn't eat dairy and I didn't like eggs. And uh, so after that one year, it was, um, well, it started out wonderful. There was this great honeymoon period that I think happens when a lot of people switch to a diet like that. And I felt incredible for the first time in my life for about two, three months. And uh, my energy was skyrocketing, my skin was clear. I felt incredible all the time, and uh, then it stopped working, <laughs> basically, yeah. and that, that great feeling left and was replaced by lethargy, uh, swinging, swings of energy where I just crash after eating a lot of fruit, um, cold all the time, my hair started falling out, and uh, my teeth ended up just disintegrating at this very young age, despite never having a cavity at any other point in my life, and uh, the breaking point for me came when I was at the dentist. Um, in fact, I had gone to a doctor previously who had, you know, told me my blood work was a mess and all that, and that even didn't that didn't sway me as much as the dentist appointment did, because I was back in the chair waiting for my my usual uh, pristine bill of health that they usually gave me when I went in for a cleaning, and instead the dentist uh, started making all these grunts and these horrible noises, like oh my god, something's really wrong. And uh, at the end of the appointment, I found out I had about I think it was fourteen or sixteen cavities. Wow. I don't even know if they um, were were counting. I think it was just that all my teeth were basically decaying. And it was at that point when I realized, wow, I'm really a mess right now. And I, I need to figure out what's wrong with me and I need to change this. So that's kind of what began my um, deeper exploration of nutrition, especially away from veganism and the vegetarian movement. And uh, it was at that point when I came across work of Weston A. Price, who did a lot of, um, he's a dentist. I, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just one, uh, fabulous. I mean, the, the stuff he 
it, that he explored and that he documented is um, probably irreplaceable because we can't really do that today because all these, these primitive populations have been westernized. Um, but anyway, so I, I came across his work and just the importance of fat-soluble vitamins, vitamin K2, vitamin A, vitamin D, and uh, started eating foods that were richer in those nutrients. And I was able to um, pretty much uh, stop the progression of my uh, tooth decay as well as just heal all the stuff that was going on in my mouth. There was some expensive, expensive dental work involved as well, but um, I realized the nutritional aspect of it was just huge. So at that point, I became very disillusioned with veganism, vegetarianism, and just all the information I'd been fed from that movement. And uh, that that kind of lay in the background for a few years. You know, I was finishing up college, um, kind of doing my own thing. And then at some point, I forget why, I just became inspired to kind of go back onto vegan websites and forums and just stir up trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I love to do that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I need like an outlet for my aggression or something, but it was, um, I guess at that point, I'm just feeling like, you know, there's so many people out there who are struggling with the same things that I was struggling with. I might as well go and try to help them. And so I'd go onto these forums and usually mes- message people privately who are complaining of the same health issues I had undergone um, as a raw vegan and just telling them, you know, this is what I did to fix myself and here's my information. Maybe it will help you. And uh, during this process, there was one book that kept getting thrown in my face, and that was the China study. Yeah. <laughs> anytime, yeah, anytime I would say anything about <clears throat> animal products being beneficial, someone would bring up the China study, and they wouldn't even go further beyond just this, you know, one sentence, read the China study, you're wrong. See, that's all they got. That's all yeah. they have. <laughs> it was, and I, I mean, that's why this book was so widely embraced, because it's the answer, you know, written by a very credible person with all these wonderful credentials who we think we should be able to trust. And so you take this book and you just feel like you can slap it down on the table and that's going to end any argument. So that's what was going on for me. And people kept throwing that book at me. It was a book I'd already read too. Just I didn't uh, read it much in depth because it, I'd um, come across it after I was already not a vegan anymore. So it wasn't that interesting to me. But after I kept getting this argument um, or this book thrown at me to conclude every argument I tried to bring up about animal foods, I was like, you know, I'm going to read this book and I'm going to go into greater depth with my comprehension of it. And I'm going to go back to the original data that this scientist, T. Colin Campbell, um, was drawing from. And I'm going to see if he was actually representing these findings correctly. I just want to know what's going on. So <clears throat> there's a lot of backstory at this time. I'd actually recently gotten hit by a car. So I was laid up for a while. Um, I had some insurance money to burn <laughs> from like pain and suffering money that they give you after you get injured like that. And uh, <clears throat> my plan at first was to... Um, travel to Thailand and live there for a while. And that didn't pan out because I couldn't get my um, my passport in time to for this thing to work out. So I was stuck in the US. I had a lot of time on my hands and I was like, well I'm just gonna dedicate the next few months of my life to looking at this huge compilation of like nine hundred pages of data from the study. Because I'm a nerd, I like math, I like numbers, I it, this it's wonderful for me. It's I mean, that's a big nerd project. It's, still, it's a very big nerd project. <laughs> and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm, I embrace my nerdism. It's, you know, I'm happy how it turned out. <laughs> yeah, how fate intervened. You couldn't get your, yeah. your visa. Yeah, so basically I spent the next two to three months um, just pouring over this data and crunching numbers and trying to figure out what the, the author of this book had done with these numbers to reach the conclusions that he reached. And by the end of this experience, I had... Um, basically convinced myself based on looking at what he had written versus what the data said that he had very selectively picked evidence from this huge just database of stuff to support a very um, unfounded position about animal protein being related to all these chronic diseases. And what was in the data was a correlation, just you know, straight up one variable changes with another variable in case, correlation between um, pro- animal protein consumption and total blood cholesterol then in turn, there's a, a mild relationship between total blood cholesterol and certain chronic diseases. And so from that, the author had said, well, if we have this three-link chain of variables, then we must be able to say that animal protein is the thing causing these diseases. But if you actually go back and look at the data, there's almost no relationship between um, animal food consumption, animal protein consumption, meat consumption, dairy consumption, and these chronic diseases that the author is blaming them upon. So I wrote a critique of just basically everything I found, and I had this little dinky blog running, rawfoodsos.com, that I started when I was um, 
just shortly after I'd gotten hit by a car, I had an idea to start blogging with one hand that I could type with because my other arm was broken. Oh, no. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was just, you know, this little project. I had maybe five people reading it, I five consistent, you know, readers for my blog. And um, so I didn't expect too many people to actually read the critique that I had written of this book. I, was, I just wanted to put it out there as kind of a compilation of everything I'd found, just for my own reference and to direct people to it if it could possibly help them. So lo and behold, this thing went viral. Within a few days, I sent it out to a couple people I thought would be, would be interested in it, and they just exploded it all over the internet. Um, I, my blog went from having maybe 50 views a day to, I think it was 20,000 in one day. Wow. And it was just phenomenal. I just couldn't believe what was happening and how many people were interested in this. So that's kind of what kicked me off um, into the blogging process. And after that, uh, I mean, my blog started out basically as kind of a vegan, raw vegan myth debunking blog <laughs> with uh, just you know help, helpful tips for people who might be struggling as raw vegans and after that I kind of abandoned that direction and just kind of broadened my blog to um, debunking bad science in general especially in terms of nutrition. So. Yeah I love it it's a fantastic blog I mean I know a lot about nutrition and I learn a lot because I like how you really get into the science and you mm-hmm. get real detailed about that I really like it. But Thank I, you. Thank you. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm really glad that your success with, you know, picking apart the China study kind of parlayed into a book deal. Mm-hmm. So why don't we talk about your book a little bit? Uh, what is it about and what prompted you to write Death by Food Pyramid? So Death by Food Pyramid, basically, um, I was offered a, a, the, the opportunity to write a book on almost anything I wanted regarding nutrition by Mark Sisson wrote a book called The Primal Blueprint, and he has a fabulous blog, marksdailyapple.com. And so I had written some guest posts for him, and he came with me, or he came at me with an offer to write this book. And he's, So I had to think about this for a while, because writing a book is something I've wanted to do since I was very, very young. And uh, I forget how the title came to me or the concept, but I think I was like waiting at a bus stop one day, and I was thinking, death by food pyramid. I want to do something like that. Because here we have this... Um, this symbol, you know, the food pyramid is retired now, but it still is probably our most prominent symbol of conventional wisdom and the uh, the health advice we've been dished out um, by the USDA and by the American Heart Association, by the American Dietetic Association, all these big name acronyms that kind of gain our trust and seem like authorities and so many people look to them for um, reliable information. So I was thinking the food pyramid would just be a fabulous symbol, like a central point to build this book around. Um, and just the, the advice that it contained and how that advice came to place. Um, so basically the book has two, two major sections, two major elements and themes. And one of those is the, uh, the political influences that sculpted our dietary recommendations. And the other one is the scientific background um, that basically led to our conclusions about saturated fat and about grains, about carbohydrate, about cholesterol, all that stuff, and how these two forces converged into the creation of this pyramid. So my goal with the book is basically, first of all, to give people kind of an eye-opening view of our, our history and both the political and the scientific aspects, and also do it just in a very unbiased way, because I feel that the information we have out there right now a lot of it is slanted from the vegetarian vegan standpoint. A lot of it's also slanted from the low carbohydrate, paleo, that primal community as well, which also unfortunately has its own dogma, much in the same way that veganism does. So yeah. this book is is kind of um, an attempt to restore the balance between the the different um, versions of history we have, <laughs> and uh, just make it something very objective for people to help to help them understand how we got to where we are right now in terms of nutrition. And uh, the other aspect of it is just to implore people to become critical thinkers because in reality, um, any time you outsource your thinking to somebody else, even somebody who's a very credentialed authority, you know, a high, highbrow uh, organization that seems to have all the facts in place for us, anytime you do that, you're, you're giving away some of your own personal power and you're, um, you're basically uh, telling the attitude that that creates is that other people know yourself, know you better than you know you. And so I'm just trying to, to encourage people to take um, control of their over their own health and uh, kind of learn to think for themselves when they hear these nutritional claims so that they can evaluate these things without having to go to somebody else and, you know, have some middlemen involved in the translation process. So I'm pretty excited about it. And it's, it's uh, was, what was interesting to me is when I started writing this book, 
um, I felt a lot more confident about the things that I know than I do now. <laughs> in just the process of researching, I've come to realize how many gray areas there are in terms of our knowledge about nutrition, how many things we really don't understand yet and that we're still trying to figure out, and um, more importantly, how many people out there are uh, kind of convinced we already have all the answers figured out and they're bullhorning that information in terms of a specific dietary paradigm. Um, so really the whole, the whole point of the book is to demolish this whole pyramid, you know, geometric figure, my plate, whatever um, uh, attitude we tend to take towards food and uh, just make it so that people realize <clears throat> there's no one size fits all diet for anybody. We really just have to go back to the basics and understand nutrition at a very basic level. Go back and look at what healthy populations have done in the past instead of trying to, to tweak and modify all these, these new things to... Um, new diets that are completely foreign to our bodies um so really it's just a it's the whole thrust of the book is a call to critical thinking well why don't you tell us about some of the history of the food pyramid because i think it's really interesting like what did the originally proposed food pyramid look like and why did it change so drastically from the original proposal yeah so basically um this is something i haven't heard spoken about too often in terms of uh, the pyramid's history and it's because there's there's one woman who wrote this book named uh, her name was Louise Light she wrote a book called um, What to Eat and this, she published it in 2005 shortly before she passed away and uh, basically she was hired by the USDA to replace the nutritionist who, who had created a previous food pyramid and this was way back in the late 1970s this was way before our current food pyramid ever came into existence but basically she was hired to um kind of scour the information and convene groups of scientists and agricultural workers and uh, determine what would be the best nutritional plan to put the United States on. Because ever, basically ever since World War II, um, the nation's uh, mortality and disease trends had shifted away from um, infectious disease, you know, pneumonia, tuberculosis, that kind of thing, towards chronic diseases like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity. And um, so the USDA was kind of lagging behind in terms of up updating its recommendations and finding something that would be more preventative in terms of those chronic diseases. So that's kind of what Louise Light was brought on board to do. So she spent um, her first year working at the USDA, convening all these groups of experts, um, scouring the literature herself. She had a team of other people working with her as well. And by the time she was done with her project, she had assembled this food guide that was based on fresh fruits and vegetables. I think it was nine servings a day of these that should form the base of this new food guide. Um, some lean meats and dairy products, um, cold pressed fats. It wasn't a fat phobic pyramid at all. She was recommending, I think, three to four tablespoons of cold pressed oils and fats like flaxseed oil and olive oil. And then up at the very, very tip of the pyramid, um, or her version of the food guide, sorry, um, were, were grains. And she thought that grains should be limited to two to three servings a day per person, always in whole form, never anything like crackers or bagels or, you know, the refined stuff that ended up forming the base of the later pyramid. And her reasoning was that she thought if people were eating a very high starch diet, it would unleash waves of basically diabetes and obesity within the nation. And that was her prediction. So she went to the um, Secretary of Agriculture at the time, proposed her food guide, sent it off to approval, and strangely enough, when it came back to her, the whole thing had basically like been ripped apart as if you know Picasso had redone it or something. And um, the, the used sparingly tip that included the grain, suddenly that was the bottom of the, the new pyramid. And uh, instead of uh, nine servings of fruits and vegetables per day, I think it was two to three servings that the USDA had minimized at first, and the only reason they ever changed that was because the National Cancer Institute thought that that was going to kill people <laughs> by giving them such little, um, such low recommendations for fresh produce. And uh, fat was stripped away from the pyramid, and basically it just became this starch-centric new food guide that just completely horrified Louise Light. And so she was, um, she went to her boss and she said, "I don't understand what happened. This is going to kill people." And uh, um, basically, the only thing she was told was that um, the USDA considered grains, fruits, and vegetables all to be nutritionally equivalent, and uh, it would be more economical and cheaper and easier on the food stamp program at the time if they just increased the grain servings and decreased the fruits and vegetable servings. So, unfortunately, Louise Lake really couldn't do anything else at that point. It was out of her hands. Um, her position didn't allow her to really protest that very much. So... Um, 
basically that became the seed for what later became the USDA's Food Guide Pyramid, which was released in 19... It's 1992? Yeah, it was 1992. And, um, yeah, so it was basically a complete perversion of what the Food Guide was intended to be originally. I mean, obviously the Food Pyramid isn't... I mean, to us that know a lot about nutrition, it's not based upon our nutritional needs and (laughs) getting America healthy. It's about money and saving the government money. Um, But... What what are the real motivations behind pushing this document and teaching it in our schools? Well, a big part of it is financial. Um, if you look at what the government subsidies, we have um, all this money getting poured towards farmers to produce corn, wheat, soy. And if you look at any pocket pa- uh, packaged food that's out there, you're going to see that those are the top three ingredients in some form or another. Um, you know, high fructose corn syrup, wheat flour, soybean oil. Those are the three ingredients you use with along some flavorings and salts and dyes, and that's going to produce almost every single fast food, junk food, packaged food that you see out there in the markets. So um, the, um, the push for Americans to eat high amounts of grain is very much um, an economical thing. It's very much financial. And uh, in fact, when the Secretary of Agriculture, um, a guy named Bob Berglund, um, this was back, I think, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, at the time, oh no, it was closer to when the food pyramid was being put together. I think it was probably the early, yeah, late late 1980s. Um, at the time, the grain farmers at the time were so upset about um, losing money that they would actually protest outside his office building. And there were times when he'd have to crawl out of his bathroom window to get home to work, or like to get out of work and to go home just because people were standing in the way. These angry grain farmers were protesting, um, asking them to do something to increase their profits. And so I was trying to, for the book, I was trying to piece together like how that linked in with the ultimate grain recommendations that the pyramid ended up espousing. And I don't have conclusive evidence for this yet, but I'm pretty sure a large reason um, they ended up embracing so many grains and, you know, just kind of shining the fruits and vegetables was because these farmers were protesting at the time. And uh, one of the issues with the USDA is that it has these two conflicting missions. And one of those missions is to protect agricultural interests in America, and the other mission is to um, dispense health information for Americans. And so, unfortunately, when agricultural interests and health information uh, are in like a conflict of interest, the USDA usually defers to its agricultural roots, and it needs to protect the farmers, and it, it needs to protect the most profitable crops that we're growing, and um, that usually comes at the expense of giving... Um, <laughs> you know, adequate health advice to Americans. So when the food pyramid was being put into place, um, a big issue was just the fact that uh, USDA still needed to protect these agricultural interests, even if it was going to be at the expense of American health. Yeah, I mean, I always scoffed at how much these grains were recommended on the food pyramid. I mean, 11 <laughs> servings, um, that's that's when I was, it was taught to me as a kid. As a kid. Yeah, um, even then, I, I doubted its merit because I couldn't even fathom how someone could eat 11 servings of bread and bagels and syrup, <laughs> et cetera, like no matter how tasty they are, I just, like how can someone fit that many servings into their body? Right, right. I mean, and... And because of this document, I ate grains for decades thinking that they were healthy. And, and they do have some nutrition in them, but they're not nearly as healthy as people think. And I, I personally believe that they're the, after sugar, they're, like, they're the least nutritional food that you can eat. I mean, except for like blue corn chips and things that are super nutritious. Um, yeah. But w- what is the real reason so many grains are recommended on the food pyramid? I mean, how did the cheap corn and other grains completely take over our diet? Well, a big part of that was in the 1970s, um, under the Nixon administration, there was this whole uh, revolution of basically farming practices. And what Nixon did was he um, stripped away all these regulations that had been put in place after the Great Depression to prevent these huge price swings for farmers. And what he did was um, he encouraged farmers to just plant as much corn and grains as they possibly, possibly could. And... uh, you know, he had this motto of uh, plant fence row to fence row. And the goal of that was to um, produce as much grain as possible and then just ship any surplus overseas. And so the farmers were having this um, this uh, promise of greater, you know, money earnings dangled over their heads to produce more grains. And ultimately that led us to be a nation of um, 
excessive grain production, which we then need to do something with. And what better way to get rid of it than to feed it to humans? <laughs> yeah. So a big part of it was the stuff that was going on back then. Um, there's just all this stuff going on in the 1970s. There's something called the Great Grain Robbery that happened as well when the Soviet Union bought, um, in a very illegal, underhanded, shady way, um, I think it was on, in the millions of tons of grains um, because its own crops had failed that year. And that also set the U.S. on just this weird price roller coaster with grains that really influenced the way that um, we needed to grow and produce. And so a lot of stuff roots back to the 1970s and these changes that happened back then. And that's kind of when we can pinpoint um, the nation, our, our nation, U.S., um, turning into this nation of high grain production and high grain consumption as well. So do you think there's any hope of the food pyramid having a drastic change? Do you think uh, Michelle Obama's food plate was an improvement? No. <laughs> I mean, you know, in some ways, um, I know they're trying to just reach a certain portion of the population that really has no understanding of nutrition, but the graphics that they're producing just tell us, first of all, so little. They give so little guidance about selecting proper foods. Um, and, you know, the new MyPlate it is supposed to be an improvement over the food pyramid, but there's no... Um, no place there's no uh direction for fat even if you look at the whole thing there's like skim dairy on the side it's a cup there's grains there's fruits there's vegetables and there's protein um which you know isn't even a food <laughs> so i'm not i think that just refers to like you know lean protein sources but um there's no guidance really about how to select foods in a way that will make you healthy and so i think at this point all the money we're shoveling into those kinds of graphics it's really really wasted and let's reopen the case against saturated fats because mm-hmm. uh, this is a huge thing. I, almost every day people are like, I, am I really supposed to eat saturated fats? And they're just so ingrained in our brains and by our doctors and by the media that we are supposed to avoid saturated fats. So, mm-hmm. But that's not true. So what did you find in your research on saturated fat when writing your book? Like, How did saturated fat become vilified as causing heart disease in the medical community? Well, let me preface this by saying when I first started writing this book, I was very much convinced that saturated fat was not a problem in any quantity for any person. Yeah. And uh, I have to say that over the course of writing this book, I've realized that the um, the picture is actually a lot more nuanced than that. And I will not at this point say that everyone can go hog wild on saturated fat and be okay. Yeah. So that, that said, although I think for the most part, it's it's very it's pretty much benign for, for most people, but there's um, just certain genetic uh, variations that people can um, express that, um, well, I'll get to this later, but basically I don't think it's like a one-size-fits-all picture in any way. So, um, but that said, if we go back and we look at the very root of where saturated fat first became a villain, it really stems back to this guy named Ansel Keys, who um, uh, he was a, a scientist, um, physiologist. He had a whole bunch of occupations. He was working in the early um, 1940s on uh, developing K rations for war, and uh, he conducted something called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment, which just was it's fascinating. Probably his, I think, his most valuable work um, that shed some light on the effects of food deprivation on the human body. Um, but what he's most known for is. Uh, First of all, he did this uh, analysis of six countries in the early 1950s. Um, he was kind of curious what was going on with uh, these strange disease trends that were popping up. Because as soon as the war was over, heart disease started skyrocketing for the first time. And uh, a lot of people at the time, a lot of scientists were trying to figure out what was going on. So what Keyes did was he took data from a bunch of countries and he looked at it um, in terms of the fat content people were eating in their diets for each nation, um, and then pegged that against uh, that each nation's rate of heart disease mortality. And what he found was that for the nations he selected, which were only six, there was a very, very perfect curve connecting um, fat consumption with heart disease mortality. And so from this, he started hypothesizing that the reason people were getting heart disease was because they're eating more fat. And um, he got highly criticized for this graph, first of all, because it was only six countries um, there's actually data for quite a few other countries available at the time that he didn't use. Um, and on top of that, uh, some of his critics discovered that there are other variables that also associated with heart disease that weren't just fat, and that included things like television viewing, radio, um, sugar consumption, um, saturated fat, animal protein, 
all these different variables that were actually just markers of a nation's affluence. So a lot of stuff was changing after the war that was contributing to heart disease, but what he has pin, like, targeted and honed in on was the fat content of diet. So he ended up um, just developing this theory that the reason heart disease occurs, or at least a big part of it, was because people would eat more fat, especially in the form of saturated fat, and that would raise their blood cholesterol, and then in turn that higher blood cholesterol would cause heart disease. So he developed what we call the diet-heart hypothesis, which is connects saturated fat to cholesterol to heart disease. And um, so basically the start of the 1950s, and we kind of are still running with this hypothesis today. We, we are, um, it, it's the reason uh, our saturated fat recommendations are still kept very low. It's the reason people with heart disease are told to eat low-fat diets. Um, and basically, it all stems down to that. It are I'm sorry. It all um, stems to that one guy, Ansel Keys. So, throughout the uh, the following decades of his career, there were a bunch of observational studies conducted, where um, kind of this, in the same way, like a country's uh, saturated fat intake or citizens' fat, saturated fat intake would be measured, and then they would be followed for their heart disease outcomes. And there's some observational evidence linking to linking saturated fat consumption to heart disease. But when there are actually controlled trials done to see it, whether um, you know reducing saturated fat intake and just replacing it with uh, omega-6 rich vegetable oils, which lower cholesterol levels, uh, testing to see whether that would improve people's heart disease mortality, um, what ended up happening was some of the studies showed that people, first of all, mortality rarely changed. Uh, occasionally, heart disease mortality would sink, but usually cancer mortality would rise, so it wasn't actually a benefit. And um, unfortunately, the, the highest quality studies of those early years were kind of forgotten and replaced with other studies that were less quality and um, basically kind of gave the impression that saturated fat was bad. But if you actually go back and you look at all the evidence, the, the case against saturated fat is so incredibly weak that it's amazing it persisted as long as it did. Now, that said, um, during my research for writing this book, I discovered there are... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I didn't say anything. Oh, sorry. I, heard, I thought I heard a noise. <laughs> um, basically, when I was writing this book, um, there's one genetic variation that's um, called APOE4, and it's a variation of the apolipoprotein E um, gene, which is it's involved in lipid metabolism, um, cholesterol absorption. And it's considered the ancestral allele because it dates back, like, way before the humans and chimps even split. Like, it goes way back to old primate days. And basically, this this uh, genetic variation is incredibly good at keeping your cholesterol levels very high. It's very good at suctioning um, dietary cholesterol out of your intestines. And it's very good at basically hoarding all these nutrients from food because it arose in a time <clears throat> in our history when um, nutrient-dense animal foods were very scarce and uh, like food supply was inconsistent and basically it was a boon at that time to be able to um, make the like just like suction every drop of nutrition from the foods we're eating and, and kind of hold on to it in our bodies and so a, a small number of people uh, I think it's like kind of depends on the ethnic population but I think it's about 15% of the population um, has carries at least one copy of this gene and for these people, eating um, a diet high in saturated fat actually does seem to have some kind of link with both heart disease and Alzheimer's disease. Is, is and, that the test for uh, familial hypercholesterolemia? Yeah. Is that the test for that? Okay. Um, no, that's actually something different. That's also another situation where people with that condition, um, basically in their bodies, they cannot... It, there's something called the LDL receptor, which picks up LDL from your bloodstream and it's supposed to do that. You know, take it to the tissues that it needs to be in and for people with that condition they don't express enough of the LDL receptors to really clear the LDL out of their bloodstream and so what happens in their case is um, they end up usually with very elevated cholesterol levels just because the, the, the cholesterol is not getting cleared from the bloodstream very rapidly. What happens then is it flows around for a really long time, it starts to oxidize and that kind of kicks off the whole heart disease process because when you have oxidized cholesterol in your bloodstream um, your body views it basically as a foreign invader, and it sends out all its immune army, you know, cells to come gobble up the, the oxidized cholesterol and, and incorporate it into plaques. Um, but that's another that is another condition where people um, are going to want to eat diets that keep their cholesterol levels as low as possible, just because there are very strong links with that condition and heart disease. Um, so yeah, that's another one. But the ApoE4 thing is something 
uh, completely different. And I think at this point, we still need a lot more research on it to really understand what's going on and how it interacts with um, diet, with saturated fat, and whether it's really a problem in the context of like a non-Westernized diet higher in saturated fat. Because, you know, maybe there's other things within our, our uh you know, our lower quality diets that's also um, influencing the, the effects of that gene. But basically, I think that um, for the most part, you know, eating saturated fat in its natural form, um, you know, in, in the form of animal products, whole foods, um, for the vast majority of people, that is not going to be a problem at all. In fact, many of our most nutrient-dense foods like organ meats, um, you know, egg yolks, uh, they're very high in saturated fat, but they're also incredibly nutritious. And so I think one of the biggest casualties of this whole anti-saturated fat movement is that it really pushed some of the best foods we could be eating straight off of our dinner plates. And so we're not even eating these foods anymore, and that's having also having um, health repercussions. Yeah, and I think there's definitely something to be said for biochemical individuality, that every person is different. And, you know, I think the paleo diet that I advocate is a, a good template to start with. But I tell people, you know, you're going to have to play with how much protein you need. Uh, you're going to have to play with if you're sensitive to dairy or not. Because I think many people are adapted to dairy or a little bit of grains or, um, you know, other foods that are potatoes that typically aren't in the paleo diet. These foods don't bother a lot of people and they're very okay. nutritious foods. So I think it's definitely is a good point that some people are sensitive to saturated fats that you'd find in red meats and you just kind of have to eat those foods and see if they work for you or not. Right, exactly. And even with the grain issue, um, another really fascinating thing I came across when I was researching for this book is um, basically all we all have uh, in our saliva, we have um, an enzyme called amylase, which um, kicks off the starch digestion process. And the, the cool thing about amylase is, or the fascinating thing about it, is um, we can produce, um, depending on your own genetic makeup, some people produce very, very, very small amounts of amylase, and other people produce tons of it. And they've actually done some studies that show people who are low amylase producers, when they ingest starch-rich foods like grains and potatoes and squash and all that, um, they have a very exaggerated blood sugar response as well as a very exaggerated insulin response compared to people who um, produce a lot of this enzyme. And so there's actually a case to be made that some of us are, I don't know if we're adapted to grains per se, but a lot of people, um, there's like a legitimate reason some people are gonna do well on a high starch diet, whereas another person could eat the exact same diet that that person is succeeding on and just feel like their blood sugar is going on a roller coaster ride. And um, so that's just another point in favor of the whole you know, bio-individual thing. Yeah, and I'm a big advocate of Having people do do you know try different diets and then do medical testing you know do a certain yeah. diet for six months and then go to your doctor and test or test your blood sugar at home test your cholesterol levels and if okay. you have blockages in your arteries and just see if it's working you know yeah. well you talk a lot about uh, the new geometry in your book you know, about common underlying themes in health promoting diets can you explain this a little bit and why we need to transcend any kind of food pyramid altogether? Yeah, for sure. So a big part of that section in my book, for anyone who's going to read it in the future, um, is looking back on the work of Weston A. Price. And I, I just think this is the, like his work is, it just so beautifully sums up the fact that people really can thrive on a wide range of different foods as long as there are certain basic nutritional needs met and as long as we are not eating these you know, modern agents of disease, like, you know, these highly refined vegetable oils and sugar and refined grains. And I think um, Price's work, basically what he found, and for any listeners who are not familiar with him, um, he traveled around the globe for many years studying these primitive, isolated populations who had not been introduced to um, Western foods yet. And so they were eating the same kind of diet they'd been eating generation after generation after generation. Um, the kinds of foods that they knew as a community could promote health and could um, produce, you know, very healthy babies, um, could protect against infectious disease, and that seemed to be keeping people pretty uh, free as well from chronic disease that we were seeing elsewhere in the world at the time. And so what he found was, <clears throat> you know, regardless of whether he was up in the Arctic Circle or down, you know, in Africa looking at tribes there, all of these communities <clears throat> um, embraced certain foods that were very rich in those fat-soluble nutrients, um, vitamins A, 
DNK, especially K2. And uh, these foods are things like fish eggs and shellfish and organ meats and um, eggs and insects and just foods that a lot of us don't eat anymore today. And, um, you know, apart from these common denominators, you know, the, the, the prizing of these certain foods, the communities that he discovered that were in fabulous health ate such diverse diets. You know, some of them were eating grains. The Swiss in the, the high alpine valleys were eating rye bread with um, just this beautifully nutritious dairy uh, made into cheese. And, you know, they were just in this pristine state of health. And then you go and you see um, the Eskimos and they're eating like uh, whale skin and seal skin and uh, just the organs of all these animals that they can capture and eat, you know, smaller amounts of berries and stuff, you know, just a completely different diet, yet they're also extremely healthy. And um, so if we look at just the sum of all that evidence that he pulled together and just the the picture he painted of human health, uh, we can see that this whole concept of there being a, like one diet that's going to be best for everybody that we can prescribe universally and that's going to give everyone the same health outcome, it's just baloney. And so the whole USDA food pyramid paradigm, um, you know, which gives us a, a very firm set of guidelines, you know, eat this many servings of this kind of food and, you know, you know avoid the fat and this, this, and that, and the other, um, that's just such a horrible approach to nutrition. And it's, uh, it's really not going to make the nation as a whole healthier because it completely sidesteps that issue of people being individuals and having different nutritional needs and having different health, um, you know, health conditions to fix, so so on and so forth. And so my new geometry chapter is basically saying, here are the common denominators and all these health-promoting cuisines that we've seen, whether it's from Weston A. Price, whether it's from the paleo community and the successes, successes it's seen so far, whether it's from the low-fat plant-based diet and you know the, the successes they're claiming, what kind of common threads do we have in all of these different cuisines? And a huge one of them is not just what you're eating, but it's what you're not eating. And again, that goes back to avoiding these high omega-6 vegetable oils, um, refined sugar, refined grains. Like You'll never find a nourishing, health-promoting diet that contains those foods, um, especially across the span of generations. And then if you dig deeper, you can also see, again, that theme of um, these specific, highly prized, nutrient-dense foods like organ meats, shellfish, eggs, fish eggs, bones, bone broth, cartilage, um, basically all these grizzly bits on animals that most people don't eat anymore. If you look elsewhere in the world, those foods are, have been the ones that have been most cherished and prized by communities that know how to stay healthy. And so I think that a big thing we all need to do is to find a place for those kinds of foods within our diet um, of course, it's a little harder for vegans if they're not eating any animal products. Um, in, a, in my book, I offer some you know, potential solutions or suggestions for staying as healthy as you can be as a vegan if you're doing that for ethical reasons. Um, but basically, I think that we can just look at the sum of our evidence and instead of creating these worrying diet communities where you know we want our, our diet to be the right one and the best one for everybody and we're going to shoot down everyone else who says otherwise, I think instead of that mentality, we really need to move towards a kind of unifying and a kind of um, interactive dialogue between different cuisines that have proven to be healthy and uh, just, you know, learn from other people's successes and combine everything that has worked and uh, let people draw from that, that combined wisdom. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really great thought because it, it makes me sad. I've had a couple clients come to me that are vegan and... Yeah they see that another person has been raw food vegan for 30 years. There's a couple examples of it. And I'm thinking, well, that's probably not you, you know, because everyone is so different. So I think people need to remember that, that just because someone is successful at one diet doesn't mean that that's going to work for you. Exactly. I mean, you can find successful examples of almost anybody. And I mean, you, you we all hear like, you know, someone has a grandma who lives to be 96 year old smoking a pack a day, you know, eating ho-hos every morning or something. And so there's always examples um, of people being able to be successful on any program. And you can't always assign their success to their diet, like with the raw vegans who are surviving that long and doing well on it. I really think that they're exceptions rather than the rule at this point. And uh, it is, it's alarming, though, because, you know, we look at people like that and we think, well, if they're succeeding, then I should be able to succeed, too. And um, it just doesn't work that way, usually. Yeah, I like that idea that you brought up about, you know, some people can smoke and drink and live to 100 and like nothing's going to kill these people. And I think the same thing is 
some of the raw vegans that are doing it for a really long time, it's the same concept. Nothing's going to kill these people. Right. You know, they're just these hardy individuals that can, they're, I don't want to say this, but like cockroaches, like nothing's going to kill these people, no matter what diet they eat, no matter how much they, you know, are nutritionally deficient diet or smoke or drink, whatever. Right. So that's just my two cents. <laughs> yeah. Well, I agree. Yeah. I mean, even um, since I was a raw vegan, you know, it's been, it's been a decade, I guess, since I, my raw vegan experience. And I've watched the community change a whole lot in that process. And I've seen a lot of raw vegan gurus who were, you know, gung-ho, never eat a bite of cooked food, um, kind of reverse their opinion and they're eating, you know, potatoes and steamed vegetables now. Some of them are not vegan anymore. So I do think that um, there's probably a shift going on as well within that community as people realize maybe this is not maintainable for your entire life. Yeah, and I'm on the opposite spectrum. I tell all my clients to eat cooked vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, and there's some things you can't cook, but, right. you know, because I just think that you, we have a hard time breaking down cellulose, the plant fiber, and it's hard to extract the, uh, the minerals. You know, I think, uh, this is my personal opinion, but I think people are really mineral deficient, and that, oh, yeah. that contributes to a lot of health problems. And Definitely. It's, uh, but I think, you know, there's a place for raw foods. There's a place for all foods. Right. And yeah. it can be, there's, you can get too much of a, a good thing, though, too. Um, but I have a question that I like to ask all my guests. Um, okay. What do you think is the most pressing health, health issue in the world today? Oh, that's hard. That's <laughs> <laughs> like asking my favorite color, um, <laughs> which I don't have one. Um, I would have to say, just on a very um, general, in a very general sense, it is our disconnection with our sustenance, with our food. And I don't just mean um, like the physical disconnection because obviously, you know, we don't grow our own food anymore. Most of us never touch the soil that our, our own vegetables grow in. No, none of us, um, well, most of us don't have our own farms anymore. We just, uh, we're very disconnected from our food supply. At the same time, we have this intellectual disconnection from the food we're eating because everything we, we think we know about food has been fed to us from manufacturers and from marketers. And so we're living in a time right now where we're eating things that are foreign to our bodies, you know, with the exception of people who have moved beyond the standard American diet and have uh, embraced more whole food cuisines. Um, But basically, we're so far removed from the thing that can probably make us the healthiest and sustain us throughout our lives that uh, because of that disconnection, it's kind of like every other aspect of our health has gone haywire. And maybe even in a more general sense, we're so disconnected from the kind of environments that our bodies know. It's like we're living in a foreign world right now that really only emerged within the last hundred years or so, where um, no longer do we need our bodies as transportation, no longer do we need to um, hunt and work for our own food. We sit at our computers all day, we're using our smartphones, we're... um, We've basically like created all these tools to make life easier, and it, our bodies are atrophying as a result. And so, combined with our disconnection from our food, it's like we're totally our bodies are completely misplaced in the world we're living in right now. And I think that's kind of the root of almost all these chronic diseases that we're experiencing now. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Denise. Um, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about you and you know where they can find you and what you're up to these days? Sure. Well, I'm just in the very, like, literally last few days slash weeks of finishing my book. <laughs> so um, pretty soon I'm going to, like, reemerge into the world and I'll be blogging and, you know, posting stuff again. Um, but right now my book, uh, Death by Food Pyramid, that should be available. I'm pretty sure the publishing date is going to be early January, but I'm not quite sure. Um, but at any rate, you can pre-order it right now so you can get it whenever it will be published. Um, and you can just do that on Amazon or wherever. And uh, I have a blog, rawfoodsos.com, which I don't think I've updated in like a year and a half, <laughs> but pretty soon I'm going to be posting again on that. And you can follow me on Twitter. Um, Denise Minger is my name on there. And uh, you can friend me on Facebook. I don't post too often, but when I do, it's usually nutritional related stuff. And my name on there is, again, just Denise Minger. I think I'm the only one. Um, and other than that, I, uh, pretty soon I'll be getting back into like the speaking engagement loops and stuff. But right now I'm just, I've just been focusing so strongly on finishing my book that that's kind of been 
where I, my head has been for the past year or so. So <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I'm writing a book right now too, and it's oh, about yeah. weight loss, and uh, yeah. I've gained ten pounds writing a book on weight loss. <laughs> I'm like, why? It's so ironic. Like writing health books, I know my health has never been worse than when I've been working on this. You know, in the middle of the night and just stressed out, and you know, just not sleeping or eating properly. It's it's ironic that I'm writing a book on health while I'm kind of letting my own deteriorate. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what it takes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you sent me the, the table of contents for the book, and I can tell the listeners it looks really, really good. So I definitely urge you guys to go out there and pre-order it and check it out when it comes out. I think it's going to be really, really good. Thank you so much. Well, Denise, thank you for coming on the show. I'm thrilled that you agreed to come on and you know help people you know to navigate the nutrition literature and get some facts straight. Because um, I know it's really confusing when you first begin trying to figure out how to eat. It's, it took me a few years of basically nonstop reading in the nutrition school to finally figure it out and what diet you know personally works for me. Yeah. And it's daunting to say the least for the majority of people. So thank you for coming on the show and taking the time to shed some light on this issue. Thank you so much for having me. All right, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Hopefully, hopefully, have you on the show again soon. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Remember that time to be thinking about your health is while you're still enjoying it, not waiting until you get sick because by then it's much harder to turn around your health. So thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast. Please go check out our websites. I can be found at fitness-bra.com and Wendy is at live to 110com If you like what you heard on the show today, please give the Live to 110 podcast a nice review and rating in iTunes. Thank you. Thanks, you everyone. See you next week.